Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right. Okay, okay, okay. Here it is, your first rounders podcast. No, 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 you don't say that first. You say this first. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's first rounders podcast. I'm your host, and my name is Brady Huggett. Thank you for coming aboard. Who's the guest today? The guest today is Sigal Kadosh. Um, if you don't know who that is, you ought to. She's a co-founder of Foghorn Therapeutics. She's an assistant professor at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where she also runs the Kadosh Lab. And a great person to talk to. Um, uh, she came into the, the Purple Room, into our studio here in her offices, and we had a really good talk about you know her, her background, her history. She said this interesting thing. Um, you know, when she was young, the, the family had this sort of au pair, and she was really close to this woman, and uh, she got cancer and died in short order. And Seagal said when she was young, she just couldn't get her mind around that. And that is what drove her to study science. Um, that's on this podcast. We talked about founding Falkhorn, of course. We talked about the sort of link between the way her parents ran their interior decorating or interior design company and her uh, scientific rigor for uh, her work in her lab. And, uh, you know, she said something else on this podcast. She said that um, she set up her lab, you know, at Harvard, and there's all this competition between the labs there to get the best grad students in their in their labs. And she was thinking, how am I going to fill out my lab? I'm going to build this lab out with all this competition. I just got here. And and she quickly built a, a lab out. And, you know, she's like, I don't really know how I managed to do that, but I can tell you because when you talk to her about the science, it's somebody that you want to follow. Uh, I felt that just and, and you know, speaking to her, and I'm not a researcher. So all that is on this podcast. Uh, anything else that I need to tell you? Ugh, I don't think so. So... Um, here it is, your first rounders podcast with Sigal Kadosh. Listen up. Coffee meeting with one of the investors for, for Foghorn. So, I think we're going to try this. Okay. Um, okay, so be comfortable. Okay, oh, we're already starting. We're on, yeah. Oh, okay. The, the closer you are to the mic, the better oh, sure. you're going to sound, but don't. I mean, and also if you want to take your jacket off, because oh. that's the other thing, like. It's a dead room, but there's yeah. no AC because of that. So and can I move warm. this so I yeah, can see you a bit more? Yeah, yeah there it is. 
I have this vague <laughs> feeling that you were actually grew up in California completely. Is that right? That is correct. I actually I grew up uh, just north of, of San Francisco in Marin County, yeah. did all my schooling there, and actually then completed all my training in the Bay Area. You, were your parents from the Bay Area? Did you, did you, like, did you have a long lineage there, or how was it that you were actually in No, the actually, my father is from Casablanca, Morocco, ah. uh, and then grew up in Morocco as well as Israel, uh, and then moved to the States after, after serving in the Israeli army. And my mom is from Michigan, and they met in San Francisco. Uh, while they were both there, and uh, so no, no lineage in California prior to that, but uh, they decided to start our family there. You're, where's your mother from? From um, Grand Haven, Michigan. Ah, I'm, I was born in Michigan. I don't know Grand Haven. Where, oh, yeah. where is that? <laughs> Grand Haven is, I believe, right on Lake Michigan. Um, right, yeah, right on the lake. Um, on the so southwest Michigan or west? That would Michigan? be west. Yeah, southwest. That's right. Yeah. My mom's from St. Joe. Do you know? Oh that? no, no. It's Benton Harbor, St. Joe. It's also okay. on the lake. No, anyway. I don't. I don't. I don't know it. That's great. So okay, so your dad moved to. So he's an immigrant, basically. Yep. Yeah, he moved to yep. the states when he was how old? Uh, when he was, uh, so he moved to the States when he was 21, right after serving in the Army. Oh, yeah. Uh, and very young. And, you know, uh, when he moved to the States, he really had no English, no money, uh, and uh, was really just looking to see what it would be like to start a life here. Um, he then, you know, as, as a young child, actually, growing up, his father's trade was furniture upholstery. And from the age of, you know, five or six as a young kid, he actually would help his father around his upholstery shop uh, just as a young kid to help the family in make Morocco. additional money in Morocco, in Casablanca, right in the, like, you know, right on the beach, beautiful area in Morocco. Um, by our modern standards, uh, you know, a relatively poor yeah. uh, area, but, you know, gorgeous views and yeah. gorgeous landscapes. And uh, worked alongside his father from a young, young age. And later on, when he he served in the Army, was in the war, uh, and then uh, moved to the States, he was trying to figure out, you know, when he met my mom, what would they do as uh, for a living? Well, and my I, mom sorry. had... Sorry. So what, uh, what war? This was the 67. This is the 68 war. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he is a Golan Heights soldier, actually. Uh, land soldier. And, um, you know, was, was certainly impacted by that experience and was really eager to... Uh, move to the States in hopes that he would ultimately start a family and uh, give his kids a, a chance at education, something he didn't have as much of yeah. uh, growing up, and uh, a chance at a bright future. Uh, so he and my mom met in Pacific Heights, actually, in a very nice area of yeah, San Francisco. And uh, when they decided to get married, they wondered what would they do to, um, how would they best combine their assets and kind of combine their skill sets. My mom had done some business school at University of Michigan and had actually moved to California in the first place to start what was to become sort of Silicon Valley. It was the very early stages of that. And she did uh, telecommunications for many of those very, very early, almost, you know, pre way, way preconceived, you know, Silicon Valley um, and so they met, and when they decided to, to get married, they decided they'd pool their skill sets, and so they started a uh, small business that's still, still there today. They're still working there today, uh, Tiburon Belvedere Interiors. It's a small <laughs> uh, small furniture uh, design, interior decorating, upholstery, that's... and they've gone on to do some of the you know five-star hotels, many five-star hotels all over San Francisco, and then when the Silicon Valley boom later actually hit, it hit, of course, all of the Bay Area, and so then suddenly they were doing estates, everywhere from San Francisco to Marin County to Napa and Sonoma, Atherton. And so they've actually continued on and doing that uh, ever since. So this, like your, fa so your father They're brought designers. his, his 
like family business almost to yeah. the states. Yeah. That, that, so they met. So first off, how did he even get to the U.S.? He just applied <laughs> yeah. for a. I believe, um, you know, with uh, yeah, a few probably a few shekels in his pocket, just uh, made enough to buy a ticket, one way ticket. We actually have the picture of this framed in our home of his mother, father, and siblings sitting in the airport chairs back in the days where you could actually enter the airport and come all the way to the gate. Yeah. And sitting there with him on the very last time they ended up seeing him for the next like 15 years until he went back. Said goodbye. He yeah. flew off. Yeah. And then he went back. Yeah. And then he went, well, yeah, he stayed in the, in the States for, I forgot how many years until he met my mom. And actually for their, when they got married there, the way they celebrated their honeymoon was to take a one-way trip around the world. Um, and uh, they stayed in Israel during that time for about three months of that one year, so that my mom could get to know his family. Well, get so, to know her, her and get to know her parents-in-law, right? right yeah, yeah, exactly. It's amazing. So that was that, and then we, from then forward, I don't think we went until I was about, um, you know, ten years old or so. So it was a long time uh, in between when he would see his family. I'm sorry, but you're saying he went, they went back to Morocco. To Israel, sorry. No, Israel. So your, your yeah. father's whole family moved to Israel. Yes, when he then... was six. They actually migrated there on a ship and everything. I see. Yep. Okay. okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. So he had to, which was challenging, you know, as a young kid to have to learn of a course. new language. He was raised with um, with Arabic and French and also the Moroccan dialect of Arabic. So about three languages, basically, and actually didn't know Hebrew at all. So only, you know, sort of the biblical Hebrew that you would learn in synagogue yeah. Yeah. Um, came from a relatively conservative Orthodox family. So he would be exposed to that kind of Hebrew, but not the everyday speaking Hebrew. And when he went to Israel, uh, he had to learn that entire new language. And so the only thing he really could do was when he first got there was math because it was universal. Right, right. Everything else, you know, required a, a whole other you know, set of years to learn that language and be able to, um, you know, converse properly, et cetera, et cetera. So. So, but then he moves to the U.S. and what, I mean, just picks up English. And then just picks, no, I think just picked up English and uh, he's very good with languages. He also can speak, you know, uh, Spanish. He can speak a bit of Greek. So, yeah, English, of course, fluently now. And, um, yeah, read, write, speak on each one of those. So it's pretty impressive. And he's just like, how does he pick up Spanish just in the the Bay Area? I I believe then in the Bay Area. Yep. We had there's a significant uh, Spanish speaking population in, in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And with his work, furniture, delivery, upholstery, design, building, you know, there were just a lot of people speaking around him. So I think he uh, just has the knack for languages and likes to learn them and pick them up. Okay, so, so I want to <laughs> I want to touch on your mother too. So she yes. grows up. She's a Michigan Mich- Michigander. She grows up yep, in Michigan. That's right. Um, goes, goes to, to Michigan, University of Michigan. Yep, yep. for business. Like, yep, yep, business and uh, business administration. Yep. And then moves to San Francisco. For... And then decides she wants to go to San Francisco and decides, uh, I believe, uh, took a job with a, one of these companies that was doing early telecommunications. Uh, for, this was in the 60s? This was, uh, no. This, no, no, this was in the uh, late 70s, early oh, okay, 80s. okay, yeah. okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, moves to Pacific Heights. And actually, I'm actually getting married in two weeks from now. Uh, and uh, Thank you. And uh, our a family friend who has become our one of our closest family friends is actually the woman who's, who set up my parents. Are you me. serious? And, yeah. So, so, and so, she lives okay. in the south of France, so she is a, a wonderful guest at our, at our wedding. Coming. So the, your parents were set up? Somehow. Yep. Yep. And that was it. That was it. I mean, it's not not love at first sight, but they went out. I and tell you, they tell us that they, you know, talked on the phone for a week, met each other, and it was love at first sight. That's so crazy. my young sister and I, you know, growing up, always wondering who we would find and who we would one day marry. You know, they always just said, "You'll know it when you know it," and we kind of thought that is, uh, you know, old hat. But it's uh, it, it is true. I do agree with them is now. It true for you. <laughs> it is now. It is true for me as well now. Yep. That's so funny. So yeah, you never know. I mean, I wonder if I'd grown up like that, I would have. I mean, my parents met and got married I, right but it wasn't i mean i guess it was love at first sight who knows 
But I never really thought that you would find this thing and just like electricity would sparkle through you. Yep, I never thought that either. I kind of thought that that doesn't that doesn't exist anymore, but um, it, it, it sure did. Wow. <laughs> so they were right, even though I told them they were wrong for many years. But anyway, wonderful parents. They, you know, my father, as I said, you know, both of them really loved math and business yeah. and things like that. And yeah. you know, um, you know, my dad had this skill set growing up, and my mom definitely had the ability to organize and create a business. So they did that, and I think. You know, I always wonder, everybody always wondered, would I go on and do the same thing? And, you know, I, I, I hope I got their level of sort of creativity, you know, in science. They certainly have a level of creativity in interior decorating, yeah. and they've done some of the most amazing, you know, from palaces to, to hotels to uh, a number of uh, a different settings so beautifully. So it's been really always very inspiring for me to watch my parents um, do their job so well and with so much care and effort. Um, and really all on their own will because it's their own business. So everything they do, it's everything you put in. Just like I really do think, you know, just like the lab, it's what you put in. It's how you think about it. Yeah. Um, we don't look at this as an every, you know, a, a nine-to-five job at all. Um, I think so much of all of life's passions, when you really get a chance to see those manifest, it's all on you to really carry them forward. And so I think um, my parents said a really a, extremely um, inspiring role model for me growing yeah, up and watching yeah. them have to build this from scratch. So the, how, how old are your parents now? My parents actually, my mom just turned 70. Still, and my parents are still, still 70. They're still running the... Uh... Yep, they're still going. All right, so then you yep. built this thing from literally ground zero. That's right. In, in I don't know, a couple of decades to where they are doing estates? Yeah, I, well, yeah, I mean, they actually, they, they're, it's funny, they still don't need um, advertising or a website. It is so, has become so well known that they still don't need. We keep thinking like my sister and I are, you know, modern era kids, yeah, and we're like, yeah. you know, don't you need a website? Don't you want us to do this or hire someone to do this for you? They could care less. They just don't need it. They're just they know they have all by word of mouth, and all the designers, top designers, come to them. And you know, he's really like they'll build furniture or they'll reupholster furniture from Louis the Fifteenth style to like brand new modern style. Um, so no, I think they they kind of created the company. I don't know the exact date where it was fully kind of started, but um, they created the small business probably. Just a bit before I was born. I was born in 85, uh -huh. so probably 82 maybe uh, or so, and they started to build it, and by the time, I remember by the time I was two or three, they were already doing um, some of the top hotels, and that continued all throughout my childhood, and, you know, really it was around Silicon Valley boom, probably right when I was in middle school or so, around the 90s, late 90s, that's when it really kind of started to pick up. And then suddenly all my friends' parents who were CEOs and, you know, major executives at companies, my parents were doing various things in their houses. And so we really, it was also a great thing because we got to know really the entire Bay Area community. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, as young kids, we thought it was great when we got to go with them to various uh, events and homes and see this, you know, just it's just inspiring to see something so well done uh, where every little detail matters. And I think that is something they certainly, um, you know, uh, taught us as well in our in our schoolwork. And, and you know that really every detail matters. You want things to be as um, well presented as possible. And I I think that did that did wear off. <laughs> so I. Is it safe to say that your dad's some sort of furniture genius or something? Uh, I mean, I, mean you... I think together they're geniuses. I think they, so your, they just have this perfect... So your mother also Yeah, the they're, yeah they're, oh. they're good. They do this. To, they really just kind of built this skill set together. They, Other than my dad having the upholstery experience before, there was really nothing Wow. Nothing else that they had done in this field at all. Yeah. Um, they had to learn the furniture, um, you know, the types, the brands, the... You know, so they did this together. They're just really an example of... Um, 
you know, they're an amazing couple and a team uh, that is really unparalleled. I haven't met anyone like them. They they work together, live together, have the family together, have a house together. They do everything together, and they're still crazy in love. So it's really That's amazing. Pretty, yeah. pretty yeah. amazing. I agree. That's amazing. Uh, um, so, but all right. So we'll switch to you. You're growing up. Um, when did you start to think? I mean, I don't know. Maybe you thought, well, maybe uh, interior design is something you'd be interested in because you see it all the time. But when did you start thinking, no, you know, science is the way? You know, I think it goes back to probably when I was very, very young. I mean, my parents tell me, and I do remember some tidbits of this, but just being very curious about everything, particularly about how things work. Yeah. I remember this because I had a number of books that people would get me because I was always asking how things work, how the world works, how nature works. And those are the kind of, that was my little library that I had as a young young, um, young girl. I had just all books focused on that. I really was much more the nonfiction kind of kid um, wanting to have tangible facts to learn and um, I was just inspired by nature and actually you know this kind of leads into how I got into the career I ultimately um, chose you know my parents um, together really inspired my interest in 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 science and in you know and just again how the world works and then we had a caretaker that would take us as my when my parents had business meetings and things like that together um, sort of an au pair but didn't live with us and uh-huh. really just kind of took care of us each day and she really uh, ins- really further inspired my my interest in uh, in nature we do tons of nature walks together she spent a ton of time with me uh, just around town learning about how things like the, just how life how life functions you this know? is a butterfly you're looking at trees things yep, like that things yeah. like that yeah. and um you know and i remember just poignantly a lot of those times you know we would go and she'd have a friend come take photos of us and we'd wonder how the camera works and how it's capturing light and really just everything from physics to biology to um you know oceanography yeah. to really everything and we had you know access to um uh settings that would inspire those kind of questions i think all over the bay area yeah. so that was really yeah. nice and um you know, moving forward many, many years, I was, I think I was always a, you know, a good science and math student. I know I did, you know, science and math Olympiad and science fairs and things like that and always got a kick out of it. Yeah. Love sort of experiments, even though I really didn't understand what an experiment was at the time. Just was trying to, uh, trying to learn about um, how to properly carry that through. And um, fast forward to my sort of almost pre, pre-teen years, basically. And uh, I'll never forget it. We came home from school. I was just sort of, you know, coming coming of age, you know, becoming a teenager. And we learned that this caretaker uh, had been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer and really had three months to live. Oh, my God. And sure enough, within three months, she, she passed away. Really? Yeah. So this was really hard for our family. She had basically been like family to us yeah. in addition to my parents. We're a really close-knit family, and she was certainly the additional one there. Um, and that hit me pretty hard, especially in that time where I liked having somebody outside of my family to talk to and, you know, and uh, hit all of us really hard. And I remember um, just, of course, being so sad, but also so frustrated and angry that I just didn't understand how this thing called cancer that I had no concept of as yeah. a as a 12 year old could take someone's life so quickly, how someone could go from being so healthy and running around with us to, you know, in a hospital bed, withering away. Um, That was stunning to me. And I had never had really any other close family friend or family member pass away. It's the first time I think I really experienced um, someone dying close to me. And... I just remember on the way to her funeral, or as a family of four, we were driving to her to her funeral, at which I was going to give a, a, a speech about her. 
uh, I had written something to to give at this at this at this situation at this um, uh, time to honor her, and uh, I remember just again feeling so frustrated and in the car, still asking my parents all the way up until we're parking at this funeral, how could this happen? How? Why are we doing this? Why am I even doing this? And um, and them just saying they don't know, and them you, just saying the doctors didn't know. You mean almost like you know? Obviously, you knew she, she was dead, but you couldn't quite believe that. Couldn't three, quite believe three months that, early, she'd been fine, and now, yeah, yeah and couldn't. We had pulled pictures to show at this thing, and I just, yeah, I just was really um, dumbfounded by how this could happen. And I remember being so frustrated that I just said, I said, you know, well, you know, and they kept saying, you know, she'd want you to go on. She wants you to, like, have an amazing, yeah. you know, um, life and career. Yeah. She's so proud of all your achievements. And, you know, I just remember saying, well, then, you know, then I'm going to have to work my whole life to try to um, make an impact in this terrible disease. At the time, calling it one disease. Of course, we now know yeah. it's many. But, yeah. um, you know, that was all I had to say. I just said I was that I was going to dedicate my life to this. Now, that doesn't really, you'd think that doesn't mean much as out of a 12-year-old. I'm sure I said I wanted to be other things as well. But I really remember that moment. I can remember exactly where we were driving. And I remember saying to my family that I was going to dedicate my life to figuring this out because it was a puzzle. I loved puzzles. I loved nature. I loved biology. And I wanted to make an impact in the world. Yeah. Uh, and that was it. That was, that was the last time I said that until, um, you know, years later I got to high school and had an opportunity to explore that in a much more meaningful way. And it's, it's funny, you know, I think about my, my position now at Harvard Medical School and Dana-Farber and in the Boston ecosystem. And it's really come full circle because actually in high school, I was so interested in, uh, in science and in biology and actually even more specifically in cancer yeah. that uh, in high school, I actually had the opportunity to come to Boston, to Harvard. Oh, you did? And I spent, yeah, three months in Boston, living with my uncle and aunt. And my uncle is a radiation oncologist, and he was at the time working at the VA hospital affiliated with Harvard. And I had the opportunity to come live with my uncle and aunt uh, right outside Boston in Jamaica Plain, commute with him every day to Harvard Medical School, go to as many lectures as they would possibly let a 15-, 16-year-old attend, and uh, really um, see patients. And I saw patients with him every day for two, three months. And I did that two summers in a row. Um, sat in on classes at Harvard, and this was like this was like high, for high school. This was just fantastic. Amazing, I yeah, got yeah. this early exposure, and you know, it was the first time where I could actually say for sure I wanted to become. At the time, I thought a doctor, right. not a scientist, but right. I thought definitely in medicine, studying cancer for sure. Um, and I was just hooked on this whole enterprise of oncology, radiation oncology, medical oncology, the science behind it. And then again, I faced a sort of second frustration, which was sitting in his office in between seeing patients, um, you know, discussing with him patients that we were seeing, again, watching some patients get fully better from this treatment, in his case, radiation, Uh um, and other patients wither away and they'd come to tell him that that patient was admitted and didn't make it. And I would see this on a weekly basis. And... Looking, I had the charts. I was actually able to look at the, you know, to understand these patients. And there's no, and many, many times, there was no real factual basis. You couldn't see why one had died, one had not. No, there were, you know, it wasn't always, you know, pre-existing comorbidities. It wasn't, it wasn't therapy. It was too, dose too high or too low. It wasn't, you know, there was no clear rhyme or reason why one patient was dying, one patient was living. In my mind, my high school mind. Yeah. 
And even in reading the textbooks, or when I would ask my uncle, you know, Uncle Rick, what, what are we going to do about this patient? You know, and he would say, this is, this is standard of care. This is what we do as doctors. We practice standard of care. This is standard of care. Here you go, read this textbook. Here you go, read the staging guidelines. Here you go, this is what we do. Um, this is the established method of care. And beyond this, there are no biologics for these treatments, for these uh, cancers, excuse me. And that's it. So and I would go home just feeling so... Um, you know, amazed with how much I was learning and kind of so um, stimulated by the environment, but also so perplexed as to why. I just thought, I guess my high school mind thought we were farther along yeah. in, our, in our pursuit to cure cancer as a world. Um, as opposed to this sort of like, here, here's the best that we can do is we give this sort of standard thing to everybody and we see what works. And yep. some it works for and some it does not. Yep. I just was sort of, um, you know, amazed by how we didn't know more. Or, you know, reading biology, some of the biology for certain cancers really wasn't actually all that beyond what at least I was being exposed to in, you know, AP biology or, yep. you know, a, a course I took in high school particularly meaningful, meaningful to me was a course called Biomedical Science. Um, taught by actually this this fantastic teacher um, who's made a major impact on my life, Skip Lovelady. He's actually coming to my wedding uh, in two weeks from now and came to my PhD thesis defense, came to, he's been a big part of my life. And he actually, you know, he was originally going to go to medical school and decided not to and decided instead to create a high school course that was beyond all others and that actually would bring in graduate level science into a high school course. Oh, so, so beyond AP Bio, beyond, so yeah, this guy just like reinvented the wheel and like completely uh, created this whole new course. He had advisors and consultants and he did much of this research himself to put together a course that would, you know, teach you things that you would definitely not learn until until graduate school. I mean, you know, sequence at the time, you know, advanced PCR, at the time uh, cloning, at the time um, immunoblot, uh, southern blot, northern blot, western blot, all of those, you know, kind of techniques for uh, probing DNA, RNA, protein at various levels. And, you know, this is not something you would normally learn in, in high school. Uh, and he's kept up, or even, yeah, 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 or actually yeah. even college in many of the cases if you don't do advanced research. Yep, yeah. that's right. And uh, he's actually, not only has he done that, that was 2003 or so when I was in high school, but he's continued to keep up with the sort of state of the art technology. So that course looks very different now. Now they're actually wow. running sequencing. They're doing CRISPR. Wow. They're doing, you know, so he, this guy just continues to keep up with it. So I'm very impressed by him. And so I want to go, go back to two things. Sure. Number one, the eulogy that you wrote. Do you, what did you say at 12 years old? I think in that, which I also probably still have. I think in that um, in that eulogy, I just comment on, commented on all our times together. How she inspired me to, uh, you know, in addition to my parents, really to. Uh, continue to be a great student and just to pursue what I love. And I was just, you know, always this kid hungry for yeah. new knowledge and understanding of concepts. I just, I wasn't really good. You know, I think I was a good student, but I wasn't great at school unless I fully understood why I was learning it and what it mattered for in oh. life. I just think I, I mean, I, it's not like I had a hard time, even, you know, even things like math. I think I always really needed to understand why I would need this, yeah. the application of things. And I think for every other uh, you know, area as well. I, you know, I, I, I did fine in all subjects, but I think I was, I always needed that full grasp. And I think that still, I see that in myself still today, you know, in, in putting together a manuscript, we'll put it together and we'll get, you know, 90% of the way there. Yeah. And, you know, you realize, and I teach the students the same thing and people in the lab, we do this as a course, as a collective exercise, but, you know, 
there sometimes when you put things together and you try to tell a story and you realize there's actually a, an element of this that we still don't understand, but it's a major opportunity. So, you know, while many labs might just submit the thing and call it a day, we often hold exactly at that stage to try to get that critical experiment that in really there, yeah. fundamentally changes how we view this, in our case, the chromatin regulatory system or protein complex biology and how these complexes interface with chromatin to exert very cell tissue and ultimately disease-specific effects. Um, the other thing, so I just want to get this right. So your uncle's going around standing next to the bed and being like, by yeah. the way, this is my 15-year-old niece who's going to yep. sit in on well, this Well, they put a little white coat on me and, they, <laughs> and they, they said I was, you know, I think he introduced me often as a medical student just to try oh, to avoid so the questions. Yeah. But no, I had I had clearance to do all this. I mean, fortunately, again, this was 2003 at the VA hospital. Yeah. There weren't, I think these days it'd be a lot harder to yeah. be able to do this. But uh, fortunately, I snuck by yeah. and I was able to see these patients. I mean, I would, of course, stand in the stand in the back of the room and just observe the, the patient exams. Yeah. I would take notes on how he asked questions. Yeah. I would ask him later why he asked those questions so I could try to learn. And he was just, he spent an outrageous amount of time with me. I, I mean, don't know this... how he even did that in between his trying to do the notes on those patients. I mean, we would get home very late. I mean, my aunt would be like, are you guys coming for dinner or are you <laughs> going to keep staying? Because I'm sure I prolonged his day yeah. like all of those days. What so, a great opportunity, though. Yeah, oh, it was a so fantastic great. opportunity and definitely solidified for sure that I wanted to do to do, to do this. In yeah. fact, at the time, I, I really thought I would be a, a clinician okay. rather than a scientist. So, that leads, so then I know you went to Stanford for your undergraduate. I right? went to Berkeley for that. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. And then Cal Stanford Berkeley. For, yep. But were you thinking that you are going, you're going yep. to go to medicine? Yep. I was fully pre-med. I took the MCAT. I was ready to go. And toward the end of, toward the end of, uh, of my uh, college time, I was still in the lab. I decided I'd wait another year just because I was really enjoying this lab at UCSF in hematology oncology, uh -huh. studying uh, CNS lymphoma, so lymphoma of the brain, and um, learning a variety of techniques, really spanning uh, molecular biology to immunology to um, cancer biology and modeling disease uh, in mice and rats, yeah. et cetera. Um, also, it was very close to the patient. You know, these were in the context, a lot of these samples I was studying were in the context of phase one trials. So it was very translational, much yeah. different than what I ultimately did for my PhD. As an undergrad? As an undergrad, wow. yep. And wow. I continued, I did an honors thesis in that lab, and I continued... Um, Continued on for a year after, really because I had started some what was to become manuscripts and papers, and I didn't want to stop. And um, I knew I'd apply to medical school, but, you know, what's a year after, after college? No problem. So I continued on with that. And then again, when it came time for the applications, you know, my application was screaming a lot more science and, and basic science investigation, laboratory research than it was, you know, Treatment. clinical medicine. Yeah, yeah. So I applied to... Uh, graduate school at Stanford, and also knowing that I had seen friends, you know, do a PhD first and then go on and do the MD. Stanford certainly had precedent for that. In fact, some people had even combined it while they had started the PhD. So there were a lot of options for me if I wanted to add the MD. Right. So you weren't you weren't disregarding the MD nope, yet? No, nope, I was like, still okay. thinking I would actually do it for sure. Yeah. In fact, so much so that I thought I would find a, you know, kind of. I didn't really know what I would do for the PhD, but I um, I thought I'd try to, you know, get through in a reasonable amount of time so I could still do medical school. Uh, and then I, you know, got to Stanford, and everybody thought I would join a lab that was very much like the lab I had been in at UCSF, very translational, um, much more cancer-oriented. 
And I did exactly not that. I went to a lab that had really no study of cancer in it and really hadn't had any study of cancer for many, many years, almost if ever. Um, and I joined the lab of Jerry Crabtree. Uh, I was so struck by the biology that was happening in that lab. And particularly, you know, this was a lab centered on understanding everything from signaling uh -huh. to stem cell biology to at the time I joined, there was a real, um, you know, group of people studying the development of the vertebrate nervous system. And I was, as I interviewed and thought about various labs to join, um, I was, Jerry pulled out a few papers actually during my interview that really caught my attention. Uh, one of which was a, um, a manuscript that was about to be submitted to Nature and ultimately published in Nature, and another one was just a paper that was accepted and published in Nature, both focused on um, uh, the development of vertebrate nervous system and specifically how cells transition between being um, neural progenitor cells uh -huh. migrating out of the subventricular zone to become ultimately post-mitotic, never to divide again neurons. And the group had identified these beautiful switches in actually the subunits of this large protein complex that our lab now uh, studies it very extensively, the mammalian switch NIF, also called BAF, um, chromatin remodeling complex. And they found that very specific, at specific times during development, in this case of, of, the, of um, the brain, but in other tissues as well, uh, transitions and switches between certain paralogs at different positions in the complex can specify and direct divergent sulfates. You know, and at the time, I was so interested in cancer, but, you know, taking a step back, you know, you, you reason that cancer always or almost always is really developmental pathways gone wrong yeah. or developmental pathways changed, yeah. differentiation halted, uh, phenotypes like this. And so I thought that, you know, again, with sort of profound naivete, I thought that there might be a connection there. And when I told Jerry that I wanted to join his lab, okay, but that yeah. there was that I really wanted to study cancer, he was like, great, no one's studying cancer in here, so here's your bench, here's some pipettes, and knock yourself out. We don't have a postdoc for you to be mentored by, but here you go, and just do it. Did you, do, do you think that, um, and because I've heard other scientists say this, that you, because you were sort of coming at it from a level of naivete, as you said, or a different angle, that that actually helps you think about things in a new way? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I yeah, I really, well, I was really thinking of it in a new way because I totally had no exposure to this biology before. I remember sitting actually even in the first several lab meetings. I mean, again, I didn't have a poor scientific background. I had done, yeah, yeah. you know, pre-med and all the other science, you know, biochemistry courses in, in, in college. But, you know, there, it took several months for me to understand what the lab was really about. Again, back to my point about I really need to grasp, you know, grasp something holistically. Yeah, yeah and how we can relate this to the broader fields of science and medicine before I can dive in. Oftentimes, I think that's just something that continues to be a theme uh, for me. You know, so it was hard to figure out actually kind of how to start. But I ended up starting with, you know, a, a basically a first data set that we as a lab had, um, had uh, generated, which was uh, just kind of stemming from a key question. All this time... Jerry and, and his colleagues have wondered, you know, do we really understand the full componentry of this complex? Do we understand the, the full subunit composition? If not, and the answer was no, you know, let's run some first mass spec experiments on it. So we did, and I had that data set, and I simply mined that data set for binding partners, whether they were going to be true subunits or not, just binding partners that might have a role in cancer. 
and did that in a very simple way simply by typing them in Google and really? exploring them and understand. I didn't know what most of these proteins yeah. were, but really trying to understand, did we have some tangible link? What I did know is that if we were going to go down this, this, this path of understanding any one of these proteins and how this complex might be involved in cancer, if we were going to do that, it better have a strong link to cancer or it's going to be a tough, messy road. Yeah. So I mined this data set and came across an extremely interesting protein within that data set. And I didn't know what it was at the time. It meant nothing. Is a protein called SS18. And when I typed that one in Google, we got a lot of hits. And we got hits because in 100% of patients with this rare but highly aggressive sarcoma, 100% of patients have a chromosomal translocation that creates for a fusion protein. Uh -huh. And all of those involve this protein called SS18. So SS18, is an, we, we ultimately discovered, is a, as a novel component of this mammalian switch for baf chromatin remodeling complex. It's stable and dedicated, tightly held to the complex. And in 100% of patients that have this sarcoma, uh, it is translocated with SSX, which basically it causes for the fusion of just 78 amino acids, this little flimsy 78 amino acid tail that's fused onto this protein complex subunit. So, and because that's a chromosomal translocation, much like um, uh, the Philadelphia chromosome uh -huh. uh, for which Gleevec was developed, of course, BCR able, you know, I was looking for something like that and I actually found it. You know, this was quite exciting that this was a chromosomal translocation in a very rare cancer, but genomically well characterized. And remember, this is 2009, it's before what I'm about to tell you about, which is the wave of sequencing studies, so that uh, the first set of sequencing studies in human cancer, yeah. um, enabled by, of course, the sequencing of the human genome. So uh, that was a clear link. I mean, protein, you know, chromosomal transloca translocations provide strong support for an initiating role. Okay, so we don't know it's causative, but you're like, well, this could be sure. something that needs further Correct. examination. And, right. you know, this had been identified years before, you know, I came into science. This yeah. was identified decades before me uh, by investigators, and it's actually the, it's pathognomonic for the disease. It's the hallmark molecular feature. So that's good to be studying the hallmark molecular feature of yeah. a disease that yeah. we think is causative. We postulate that's causative. Um, you know, we've gone back later, of course, and sequenced these tumors, and there are no uh, recurrent events. Yeah. There are; it's actually one of the least mutated tumors um, across the spectrum of tumors that have been sequenced. So we started to study this. We had no real reagents for studying this. We had to generate uh, antibodies. We had to generate strategies to capture this protein. There wasn't much known about it. We had to... Is, I'm sorry, is this you and Jerry still? or this the rest was, of Yeah, I mean, this was really just because this was sort of a one-off from what his lab did, this ended up being <clears throat> something that I pursued quite, you know, independently. Yeah. I was very fortunate to have the, you know, many members of the lab, postdocs and grad students alike, um, sharing with me their protocols and teaching me the general ways by which we can study these protein complexes and ways that they've taken to study them in different, you know, for different biologic questions. So I was very lucky to have a very um, insightful, thoughtful, and quite frankly, brilliant uh, set of colleagues, you know, around me all the time. But no, it was just me on this so you're, project. you're sort of working independently inside Jerry's bigger group still. Yep, yeah. I was working independently on this project. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, of course, aided by the whole lab, but, right. you know, working independently. And that's why ultimately this this cell paper we published on this uh, ultimately was a two author, a two author paper, because it was just sort of my one off project yeah. that I didn't even you know, we didn't know where it would go. We didn't know how exciting it would be. Um, but I think it really was um, a pivotal moment in time in this field as it truly linked uh, this protein complex to cancer in an extremely meaningful yeah. and specific way. Uh, you know, and right around this time came the first wave 
of what was going to change the whole field, which was sequencing. Yep. Tumor sequencing completely changed the game. You know, and I'm sure you've spoken with other experts in, in, in the sequencing area, but, you know, there were skeptics of tumor sequencing, of cancer sequencing efforts, of TCGA. There were skeptics saying, you know, you already know of P53 and RB and kinases and other things are going to find the same culprits that have been the... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Subjects of drug discovery efforts in both academia and pharma for decades are going to find those same culprits. And of course, other people argue no, the human tumor sequencing effort is going to be real and it's going to be um, very illuminating for what are all the possible causes and determinants of, of oh, disease. Yeah, uh, which, seems... of course, everybody seems, oh, yeah, of course that's the thing right, now. But yeah, there were actu yeah. actually skeptics. And you could talk to Eric Lander and other folks about this, but certainly there were a number of people who were not so pro uh, cancer sequencing. Uh, but that suggests that we already sort of figured out cancer, and that they, wasn't even close. Which was to, not even close. But, I mean, the key gene culprits, at least on a genetic level, people thought were... P53. Yep. Right. RB, uh, P10, um, okay. you know, RAS. Yep. Sure. There were several of them. There's still subjects of drug discovery efforts, but uh, definitely not all of them. And this was part, probably one of the most unexpected findings to come from the sequencing era. As I mentioned, people really thought these chromatin regulatory uh, you know, complexes and regulators, machinery, were playing more maintenance roles in the yeah. cell. Never did we think, I believe, and I'm speaking for a field before my, you know, I was in it, but uh, did they really think that this would play such critical roles in disease? You would think this is required for virtually every cell function. Yeah. That's uh, a required... Um, broadly uh, needed set of genes, why would they be then mutated and then actually that would cause cell proliferation and cancer? So literally on a, I'll never forget this period of two, three weeks when the first set of these sequencing studies emerged in every major journal, you know, from Nature to Science to New England Journal of Medicine, several of them, you know, cell, all of the above, yeah. really just covering these first at the time around 40 or so sequencing studies. I believe we had 44 by 2013 or so. And almost on a weekly basis came out another one of these papers. And every day when I would check my PubMed alerts or, you know, alerts with various gene names of this complex and things like that, another one highlighting that these very genes 
were some of the most frequently mutated in all of human cancer. I mean, you know, ERID1A, over 60% of endometrial ovarian clear cell carcinoma, you know, the synovia one, one we had characterized rare cancer, but 100% of that cancer. Um, PBR1 mutated in over 40% of clear cell renal cell carcinomas. And the list goes on and on and on. And virtually every sequencing study that emerged highlighted these genes in the abstract or in the title. They were the most frequently mutated. If you now added, you know, we, we saw this. Uh, some of these um, genes were encoding for proteins that as part of these mass spec e efforts we had actually characterized as mammalian switchniff components. So if you tallied up all of that, again, marrying biochemistry with new genomics um, and genetics in this case, we summed all these mutation frequencies over all the cancers that had been sequenced at the time, and this tallied to over 20% of human cancers. So this was totally unexpected for the field. This was, you know... And for us, imagine, you know, imagine our lab, imagine Jerry, who had dedicated his whole life to studying these complexes, um, being told many a time that this was going to be just for maintenance roles in the cell, you know, and of course he did beautiful work in development, but never would he imagine that it's these would be so mutated in, in so many yeah. cancers. I, I mean, I have this, like, so uh, let's go back to your childhood or mine, where, where um, you know, your grand father gets cancer or your friend's mother yep. gets cancer. Some of, it's just like this thing called cancer and it's right. all lumped together. And like what what we're learning is that cancer is really sort of, you know, like a thousand different um, yeah. uh, rare diseases Correct. almost. Correct. And so... And genetics is helping to define all of all, those. Right. Yeah. Those, but that means it's going to be, you know, the, the, the thought was, well, we'll just find a thing that'll wipe out cancer one day. And it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. You're going to have to find a thousand things to wipe yeah. out a thousand cancers. I think, I think, yeah, the latter is much closer. I think we're going to have, I mean, there may be, of course, um, some, there are already examples of this, you know, some, some biologics that may target a, a range of cancers yeah. that are defined by histologic evidence, et cetera, uh, that work because of a similar convergence of, of pathway disruption or uh, uh, genetic convergence. So I think that's that's where we're headed. I think there may be, you can group some of them, sure. Um, and some cancers that are very different uh, under the microscope to a pathologist because they come from different tissues, if driven by the same genetic uh, problem, the can same abnormality that way, may be treated by the same agent. Yeah, yeah and yeah. this is the era we're entering right now. You know, I think I think back through history, most scientists would say that they feel like they're working in the most exciting time for science. But do you feel that way? I mean, specifically yeah. for your field. I, I think for our field, especially, I think, I think, you know, there's, you can just, you know, continue to use the principles we and the, and the strategies we have as scientists now and understand the ramifications of even a single point mutation with such detail. And I think that that is so rewarding. I mean, the you think of the genomics era, but it's also met with, you know, the structural era. Look yeah. at the boom and cloud yeah. EM yeah. and in other structural techniques and the bioinformatics and computational biology to go with all of that, yeah. you know, is is really um, progressing and evolving at a very fast, in fact, unprecedented pace. I want to I get uh, on <clears throat> to Foghorn. Oh, so, sure. So how is it that you end up going to Boston, joining Harvard, MIT <clears throat> Road, and starting Foghorn? Sure. Um, I was actually in Boston giving a talk. I was just invited, um, actually, by Stu Schreiber at the, at the Broad, uh, a good friend of Jerry's, and invited me very kindly to come and give a, uh, a talk, one of my very first talks. I was very nervous for this talk. <laughs> um, lectures, you know, ever, full hour long. I wasn't ready to give job talks or anything at the time. I prepared that. So wait, wait, this is your first talk, and it's got to be an hour. Yeah. All in your work. Yeah. I had just done my thesis defense talk, so that was pretty polished. Oh, okay. So right, I good. modified a little bit from yeah. that. 
But I, it was my very first talk, which I didn't really realize would become a job talk. But I was there giving this, and I gave this lecture at the Broad uh, in Cambridge. And at that talk, you know, the talk somehow drew. I guess, I didn't know this was advertised so widely throughout the Boston community, but it drew a number of members from Dana-Farber, from Harvard Medical School, from MIT. And so, you know, after this talk, I was approached by who would become my ultimate chairman, Stu Orkin, uh, at Dana-Farber. And he just said, you know, I think you should apply straight for assistant professor. And I thought, you know, just so Here. you know. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, no, 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 you don't understand. I, like, just got my PhD. I'm, I'm, I have to do – I've got a lot more training to do. Um, but thank you. And, you know, he said, no, 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 I think if you're doing these faculty fellow things, you might as well go straight for assistant professor. And I think you're ready and you know what you want to do. And I, you know, short of arguing with him, I just thought, okay, um, you know, obviously you, you know better than I do. So then let's, 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 let's think about that. So I found myself – uh, on a plane again to Boston about five days later to give what that would quickly. become my job talk because wow. they actually had uh, an open search and he wanted me to interview for that. Um, I interviewed for that search, uh, won the search, and uh, a few months after that found myself moving my whole life from California to Boston, where I had never lived except for in these summers. With your uncle, uh, right? right? Yeah. Yep. And they had actually moved, uh, unfortunately, by the time I was going to get there. But they, I had nobody really that I knew much in Boston. I had a few friends that were here for residency and uh, various aspects of their training. But um, you know, my whole life was in California, and suddenly I was packing up my lab bench, moving across the country. Um, no family or friends, single, uh, and uh, just ready to. Like um, 27. Yeah, or 27, 28, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. right there. I think I was turning 28. And uh, to start not a faculty fellow position as I had thought I would do, but to start a lab as an assistant professor. Um, and, you know, I just sort I mean, of thought to myself. Exhilarating, right? Exciting. Exhilarating, a, a little exciting, a little daunting. Anxiety, per, yeah, I would yep, think so. Right? Definitely, definitely that. And I just thought to myself to try to, I think, take the pressure off a little bit. I just thought to myself, you know what, I, I'm either going to do it or not. I'm either going to like it or not. Yeah. There are a lot of careers I can do yeah. if I don't like it. And I might as well just give it all shots, you know, because I, you know, by starting as a sim professor, I have a startup. I have some lab space. I have the ability to grow. I might as well try my hand at all these grants and awards. I might as well try my hand at some high-risk, high-reward ideas because if I fail, I'm going to fail at some point anyway. Right. Whether it's now or later, right. let's fail. And right. if we're going to fail, let's fail fast. Right, right. Um, so I just sort of took the pressure off myself, I think, by saying, you know what, Um I am just going to give this my best shot. Let's get this over with. Yeah, and yeah. I think because of that, you know, we didn't really go for sort of the lowest hanging fruit, you know, to try to get a few papers in the bag or whatever. I think yeah. we went for more of the high-risk, high-reward kind of science. We um, we got some things done that I knew I wanted to get done. I finished a paper I had with Jerry. So you're saying done. we. Like, did you then oh. you hired into your Well, library? we was, yeah, so it was me. So I, I got there. I'll never forget it. In the cold winter. You know, in Boston, um, showing up, never having lived in snow before, never no, having no gloves, no, no, hat. no, no, no socks. You don't need Are those you in California. Nope. And um, and uh, starting the lab, and it was just me on the floor in an empty lab that was being sort of semi-renovated for me. Uh, I had nobody, and then thank goodness I got the first few students um, to join my lab. And I spent every waking moment with those students in the lab, really shoulder to shoulder. Um, and I think those students really, um, they wanted a young lab. They wanted the hands-on experience. And I think that um, 
closeness and sort of, uh, you know, hands-on um, style of mentoring that I was able to have in the beginning, I think that made them very happy. Yeah. And fortunately, that made them happy enough to tell many of their friends and colleagues in the, in the graduate programs that this was a good lab to join. Because I think without those p- few people initially planting the seed, I mean, you know, Harvard, we all compete for the best graduate students all the time to yeah. join the lab. And I mean, you know, quite frankly, who's going to join my lab? I'm like this like young professor that has no mentoring track record at all. If I had been in that program myself, I would not join my lab <laughs> because I think that, you know, you'd want somebody that at least you can have a bit more faith, can get you through a PhD, knows how to mentor, get you to publish. knows how to get published yeah. good papers. Yeah. I mean, that's what I look for. Look what I joined. I joined yeah. Jerry Crabtree's lab, HHMI, investigator, um, you know, fantastically, uh, you know, skilled scientists with so many people he's placed into faculty positions and fantastic postdoc positions. That's how I envisioned it. Yeah. So why wouldn't I, you know, why wouldn't these students do that? And I was just so pleasantly surprised. In fact, people told me, you know, you're going to Harvard. Well, you're going to have a rough time getting students because they all go to the big labs. And I thought, OK, well, again, another risk I'm taking. Sure. Yeah. Let's just try the risk out. And so, sure enough, a few months later, my lab was, you know, four students. Uh, then I got two, you know, technicians, computational biologists. And so, by I think by the end of that year, we were almost seven or ten. And, you know, with those first few, first probably seven people, I had them each have a project because they were graduate students that would need their own their own project. And I kind of purposefully strategized to have the projects uh, span different skill sets. So one project would require a lot of protein biochemistry, um, uh, cellular biochemistry. Another one would require protein isolation, production, some structural studies. Another one would require a lot of genomic investigations, you know, RNA sequencing, chip sequencing, um, DNA accessibility readouts. And another one would require a lot of computation. And then I, you know, kind of trained them in all of these key, you know, some cancer biology, all of these key areas that I deemed would be critical for the next five to ten years, let's just say, of our lab. Uh, and then they cross-pollinated, which was perfect. Yeah. It was just I was able to, at that point, really step away from the lab. I think I was out of the lab, you know, actually quite quickly. I think I probably was in the lab for the first six months of my position and then I a was sized out because we were exceeding the size of my young little lab and also they were better they were as good or better at the techniques you know than I was so, so then was, they were just sort of operating on their own talking to each other sharing talking work. to each other sharing protocols teaching each other, each other things I no longer needed to go in to teach somebody to do you know a western blot or a yeah. sequencing experiment or you know I think they were learning new tools new protocols uh, adopting new methods for the lab uh, innovating really and teaching each other things and I could do what I was there to do, which was the sort of more global oversight, global, um, you know, directions. Where do we really want to go? What do we really need to say? What do we really need to understand here? Directing the questions and, and, you know, and hopefully, you know, helping them become very good scientific thinkers. I think because of the, the human genetic studies coming out in cancer and other disease indications, uh, the pharmaceutical industry became pretty excited about uh, these large machines as drug targets. You know, so much so that I had a number of large pharma companies um, come to my office very early on. I barely had an office and just say, you know, we would love to partner with you. Already? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're just a researcher. They, they want to partner yeah. with your lab. With my lab, correct. With put my some, lab, thinking that in. we were going to come up with some new targets or mechanisms that could be targeted. And sure enough, we did, and we yeah. are. Yeah. But I, they really wanted to um, partner with us in the pursuit of strategies that could be used potentially to inform the development of therapeutics. And, um, you know, 
for a number of reasons. So they, you know, they approach the lab and, you know, there are very lucrative um, financial opportunities that come along with that, particularly for grant funding. So grants are, of course, challenging to get. And um, we're on our way to, um, you know, getting successfully a number of them, which was fantastic and really supported the lab from the government, from foundations, et cetera. But, you know, pharma funding is very nice because it tends to be quite a lot. And if they, quote, sponsor a lab through a discovery research program, uh, this tends to be quite substantial. So, you know, they said this might be a very good thing for your lab. You won't have to worry about grants for a while. You'll have all this funding. And the only thing is we basically own all of you, and we own all of the discoveries that come out of the lab and anything related to that. And so since I kind of thought, well. The school you're talking about. That, no, no, no. The uh, the pharma industry. If, if they were part, if they yeah. were going to partner with us, yeah. then they would own. Yeah. That's how this works. Yeah, yeah. They, they would own our intellectual property. Yeah. So, um, you know, I wasn't even necessarily opposed to that, but I was opposed to the following two things. Number one, many of the disease indications we were focused on, for example, synovial sarcoma, these are very rare indications. They're these are orphan diseases, yeah. orphan populations of patients, which. You know, historically, pharma hasn't been as focused on, and it's challenging to. It was challenging for me to envision how they would become so focused on rare diseases. Many of the things we were looking at were rare diseases. So, but we, but we know the answer to that. It's because you can charge to the roof for them, and yeah, now you're interested in it. Finally, Correct. farmers interested in Correct. it. Correct. And so, you know, I think um, they, you know, weren't as interested. I, I didn't have the faith that large pharma, very large pharma. This was only large pharma. Like talking J&J, here. Glaxo. These whatever, are yeah. very big. Exactly, yeah. uh, large pharma companies that they would really place the emphasis I think needed I and they would have they you know they have to respond to shareholders yeah. so they have to have the buy in to respond to to doing this. Yeah. I just didn't want to discover things in our lab have them kind of start to partner with us and then shelve the patents because then we can't actually work on our own I see, yeah. our own insights and that yeah. would have been a big problem both for the lab as well as any other future efforts we'd want to carry forward. That was one reason uh and the second reason was that I, I, we were all too aware as a young lab that this was a very challenging area of biology with very little known. I mean, I think here we are five years later, I think we've made a good dent in that, yeah. but there's still a lot, yeah, you know, yeah. there's a lot to do. So because of those two principles, I declined all of the opportunities to partner with big pharma, big, big pharma. And I thought, okay, we have to do something else um, because this, otherwise our lab will remain, you know, our discoveries will be exciting, but the the uh, impact of those discoveries won't reach patients for a long, long time, mm-hmm. uh, maybe if ever. Yeah. So I um, decided to uh, start my own thing. And I was very fortunate to uh, come in contact with who would become my partner on, on Foghorn, Doug Cole. Yeah. That's so right. You, so you were already, I, I, I wondered if maybe Doug came to you, but mm-hmm. you were already thinking about it. Yeah. Oh, okay. We were thinking about it. Um, you know, at that time, I knew I wanted to do this. And I, um, through a, a friend and colleague and advisor, actually, I uh, was able to meet Doug Cole. We met at Area 4 for the very first time, actually first time in his, in his office at, at Flagship. I approached them and, you know, I really... You know, I had never definitely done anything entrepreneurial. I watched yeah. my parents do something entrepreneurial yeah. in, you know, in the furniture and uh, interior decorating business. And, of course, I went to Stanford uh, where I was surrounded by the Silicon Valley and MIT bubble too. and yeah. MIT. Yeah. And I was around this ecosystem where, sure, a lot of companies are being started. And I think it was a very ripe opportunity uh, to do this. But, you know, I didn't have any coaching, let's just say, on how I would go approach a venture firm. I knew a lot of people who would put a ton of effort and practice their pitch for months on end. I didn't do any of that. I had no knowledge of what a pitch really was. I just wanted to share my vision for what I think could be a very, 
you know, um, impactful and broad spanning, uh, broadly applicable uh, effort. So when, um, you, when you met him, did you actually have slides? No, oh, no. Okay. I went in and I had nothing. That's I like, you know, they tell every entrepreneur, you must have your pitch deck ready. And uh, Zero. No pitch deck. Didn't even bring slides. That's funny. Probably had my computer, in all fairness, but I didn't I didn't even take yeah. it out. Yeah. I just sat with him and just kind of shared the exact story I shared with you just now about really how we got into this and why I think this is sort of a opportune moment to really um, capitalize on some of the discoveries that have been made. Yeah, you know, I, I read someplace, because you mentioned Genentech earlier, that you, you, your goal was sort of the Build the genetic of the East, which I have to say, by today's standards, is that's a that's massively ambitious. Right. Just because so many things get bought out, as you mentioned, that's correct. Yeah. And you know, again, uh, well, I can't predict the future, uh, and I've been quoted, you know, saying that now many times, uh, including in the Forbes article that um, that uh, announced the company in March of, of last year. Yeah. Um, I know I've been quoted saying that, and I, um, you know, I stand by it because if we take the approaches we are taking. Uh, to uncover this new class of medicines. And this is sort of met at the perfect timing with this era of genomic medicine where, you know, every single cancer patient that walks into the Dana-Farber, MD Anderson, other major cancer centers all over the world now are sequenced. Yeah, yeah. You know, the ability to identify patient populations, the ability to define biomarkers. This is we're in a totally different ballgame now than we were even five years ago. Yeah. Even five years ago when I started at the Farber, we were just, they were getting going the sequencing platforms, but not every patient was sequenced. Yeah. Now we have a whole exome, you know, on, on, on essentially everyone, if not targeted exome, including many of the genes that have been defined by larger exome sequencing efforts to be uh, involved. And I think the goal for, you know, the goal for Foghorn is to have an, you know, a, a diverse and, um, and far-reaching platform. So that's that's why I referenced Genentech. Genentech, yeah. like I said about the antibodies, the platform. Company. They didn't just do it once. Yeah. I mean, they, you would have been happy with the results of rituximab, right? Yeah. But they did it again. They did it with Herceptin and Avastin, and they just did this again and again. They said, if you told somebody that you were going to do this for a cell receptor you barely understand, CD20. And then that you weren't going to just stop there, but you were going to do it for Again, every other yeah, one around yeah. the cell surface. And they did this. They were in perfect position with a platform to be able to do it for any of those. And then just wait for either academics or themselves to find indications to use all of those. If you think about it, that was brilliant. Yeah. It's, it's more like, I mean, I, we'll find out. But it's sort of like if you really want to do that, you may have to have complete control of your board, right? I mean, you may have you end up going public if you sure. have active shareholders or whatever. Sure. Like you have to sell out. There are a lot of variables that yeah. play, and we'll have to see how this plays out. But yeah. I think, you know, no matter what, what I stand very clear on is that's the vision. Whether, whether we achieve it in exactly the way I've been telling you or, you know, that or, or a different way, we'll get there somehow. Well, that's what I, so I wanted to ask about yeah. a little bit how the company is formed. Sure. You had Pioneer as the, as your flagship yep. as the, the, I think, sole investor that's in your Series A, right? Sole with a few additional investors, yeah, that so we did disclose. 50 yeah. million were put in there. That's right. But, you know, you're the founder, you're co-founder with, yeah. with Doug, but you're not the CEO. So nope. I'm wondering, like, how, how much are you actually in the company versus just overseeing... Sure. So yeah. I also, you know, as I as I did this and I, you know, I, I, I don't at the moment, you know, have multiple biotech companies for which I, you know, consult or I'm on their yeah. boards or yeah. I really am uh, quite focused on, on Foghorn. I really want to see them deliver on, you know, exactly the things that our lab is not going to do. Yeah. I know our lab can um, succeed in uh, taking mechanism quite far. And I know that I have great faith in, in us as scientists, biochemists, structural biologists, uh, genomic-centered biologists, etc., to be able to unravel all the ways by which these complexes can be perturbed in disease. So, uh, yeah, so I think in terms of, you know, involvement, I... 
am and am deeply excited about seeing where Foghorn can take this on a number of indications, a number of targets, and of course is the platform. Um, and I'm you know heavily involved uh, scientific founder. Um, I'm on their board of directors. Yep. I'm on the SAB. I'm you know a consultant and. Um, so it's getting a fair amount of your attention. Yeah, and the lab is the, the, la- is the rest. The, yeah, the yeah. lab. Of course, the lab is my you know my primary employment. Yep. Employment was with the Dana Farber, and that is my primary uh, job on a day to day basis. This has really just taken yet additional time. Yeah. You know, a lot of times this has to be a, from six in the morning to nine. If I'm you know for foghorn activities, various meetings, whether that's with investors or whether that's uh, with um, you know scientists that are going to get involved with Foghorn or the group itself to have scientific uh, discussions and uh, I mean and so like I don't know anything about your husband but uh, you're about to get married you know that <laughs> is also going to draw some of your attention and time that's right uh, how are you you know, this is you've got a lot it's one going of these on. things where they say, you know, um, you know, I think when I met Richard and he's a he's a doctor, he's uh, so he's aware of oh, yeah, his and life and everything. Absolutely. Yeah, we're yeah. we're both, you know, we are obviously both very hardworking and he's um, he's a medical director at Alchemy's. And okay. so he, oh, he has developed. Industry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So he actually I you know, we've learned a lot from each other because I think he's really um, taken forward these medicines in a later stage in, in clinical trials. He is a clinical trialist. He's designed clinical trials and developed uh, protocols uh-huh. for a number of uh, neurotherapeutics from, you know, from Alzheimer's, schizophrenia to MS. And uh, it's been really exciting to see his efforts um, develop there on a much more clinical side. Here we are at the super basic side. So right. we have very different sides of the spectrum and we know different people. Of course, we also know some overlapping groups of people. And so that's been really fun as we've gotten to know each other and know who each other you know, knows around this very vibrant biotech ecosystem in Boston and Cambridge. Yeah. That's been fun. So yes, definitely. It's very important to have a supportive um, spouse. He's old, almost my spouse. Um, his fiance. Two weeks, two weeks. Yeah, in two weeks. And um, no, he's has been, uh, you know, wonderful inspiration for everything that I do, and I think uh, we're a wonderful team. And you know, I think that you know, meeting somebody you really love spending time with, learning from, uh, caring about, etc. Yeah. It's really, um, it's just focused my attention even more to be more organized. So I think you know, people ask this question a lot. You know, you're doing you're doing so much. You now have this whole company you're running. You're doing you're running the lab. You have a number of other roles. You're you know on panels a lot. You're yeah. doing podcasts like yeah. this. Yeah. You know, how do you balance all that? And I, I am fortunate to have a phenomenal assistant who runs most of my life, um, and she's terrific. She coordinated this with you, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. And um, that's helped a lot because actually before that I didn't have one. I was doing all this myself, and that was Impossible. getting very uh, burdensome and very challenging. She is um, really remarkable, and um, it just forces you to uh, prioritize and to be even more organized. And actually, that's something I've learned by starting Foghorn and watching a company. This was the first time I've ever been... I'm sort of an insider outsider. I'm not fully, you know, I'm not in the company. I'm not sitting there every day. Yeah. But I get a chance to, I had the chance to take part in and 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 also observe uh, the remarkable leadership by our by our CEO Adrian Gottschalk. He is absolutely phenomenal, and watch him really grow and structure the company not only from an organizational perspective but from a cultural perspective. And to watch that and to really sort of take part in building that with him and building that with the you know, extremely talented uh, VPs we have and other leaders within the company. This has, um, I think, refined um, my own um, strategy in running the lab and really added some additional ways of thinking about the organization of any entity, be it a lab or a company that I would have never otherwise had. Yeah. And, you know, 
in general, I think you know people in companies and academics would agree with me. In general, academics tends to be a bit less organized, you know, because we can we have the ability to go to work every day. We yeah. can go to work tomorrow. I can read a paper today on the way home from this podcast and think of some new idea and implement it yeah. tomorrow yeah. with really no strings attached yeah. and nobody looking over us and saying how come you're spending your budget that way. We can essentially do anything within the realm of what we have any funding to do. Yeah. Uh, and if it's outside the realm we, well, realm, we have discretionary funding. So yes, we can basically do anything uh, on a daily basis and the sky's the limit in terms of biologic exploration. In a company, you can't do that. Yeah. In a company, you have to be a lot more focused on the key goals at hand. You have to respond to the board. You have to respond to ultimately, if the company's public shareholders, yeah. and um, you know to do what's best for the company and to do what's best for the ultimate value creation. And there are pluses and minuses to each of those things. But I think... Having the opportunity, this unique opportunity that I've been really you know, blessed to have over the past several years to watch both develop, because I really did them both almost at the, at same, the same time, time. Yeah, that's so amazing. to watch both develop and to take the insights from you know, the, um, the, the teachings, really, and particularly focus on the organization and structure from one to the other and just kind of use that to craft my own way and vision of how I, I hope that we continue to build the lab in a productive way has been, you know, really rewarding. And I just think it's a once in a lifetime, you know, opportunity to to grow as a leader. And yeah. I hope that I've taken, you know, Adrian is a terrific leader. Doug is a terrific leader in, in flagship as well. And to take the, the various, um, you know, pieces of advice and uh, and just parts of our discussions that I've had over the years and you know, think about that and how that really uh, relates to the work in the lab. That's been really, really fun, and vice versa. There's yeah. like there's three things I want to ask you. Do you think you you want to do this again? That's a great question. That happens a lot, right? Yeah, I mean, I've I, I I definitely won't say no. I think I um, you know, I. I like focused efforts. I yeah. think that's probably um, reflected in the kind of science we do. Yeah. Um, it's quite focused. Um, there's so much that can come from depth of science and rigor in science. And I think, you know, it's not wrong to approach just a wide range of things and be diffuse. But for me, I get much more excited about getting something down to the amino acid. And wholly understanding. Wholly understanding yeah. things. And I think that just goes back to just who I am as a person. Yeah. I think all the way from when I was a kid learning in school and I just had to understand it fully to want to care about it. Yeah. And I, so for me, um, I, I definitely won't say no, that I wouldn't do something like this again. Um, the future is, is, you know, long. I'm still relatively yeah. young. Yeah. So I think there's a long number of years ahead. So the, the, there's this other thing that I've been thinking about a lot. And like your career fits right into this thought process. So sure. you grow up in the Bay Area, right? And so you are aware of what's happening there. And then you're at UC Berkeley. Then you're at Stanford. These are really translational, yeah. biotech-focused universities. And then you come to – you just cross the country to the yeah. other one, to MIT, Harvard, the right. road. You know, the, just the uh, vitality of, of Cambridge. Yeah, it's amazing. And you can meet VCs and you can start companies, right? And in that mix is your incredible drive and intelligence in the middle there. Now, what happens if you actually had grown up in Michigan or Utah or South Dakota? And all the things that are, make you you are still there, but, you know, you don't necessarily – I mean, the, the, just we were just we – I was at Bio last week, and mm -hmm. I was at this panel. We were talking about this, how, like, the, the biotech model works really well in those two areas of the country, but they do not work in other areas. And how do we make sure that we are accessing the talent that is in those other spots? Yeah, this is a great question. I think about this a lot, too, because, of course, we meet, you know, candidates for the lab, graduate school candidates, postdoc candidates, candidates for the companies, yeah. you know, all the time that come from 
just not one of these two sort of meccas, if you will. I mean, Cambridge-Boston really is, I mean, it's even incredible. even yeah. coming from Stanford UCSF, where, of course, I was surrounded by yet another major ecosystem for biotech and medicine and all of the above, it's, 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 it's just striking to see and to think that Kendall Square, you know, right in the, what is now the heart of Cambridge, was used, used to not be the heart of Cambridge. It is not the sort of center of the Before, universe. Before, like, Gentile got there, yeah. what it was. Yeah. And now, you know, you cannot go a foot without seeing another new biotech company or well-established biotech company. The competition for real estate and space is just unparalleled, you know, and I think, um, you know, that, that, that shocked me too, I think, yeah. moving here. So I think we're very lucky to have that. To your point about, you know, other locations in the United States, I think certainly, um, you know, biotech's, biotech is a growing industry. They are growing outside of these large, uh, large cities. Certainly, uh, Chicago, San there are San Diego, yeah. Michigan, LA. You know, there are a number of other spots. New York, obviously. Um, you know, growing that you know that will have and accommodate additional biotech companies. They, you know, biotech companies just historically have tended to come from locations near the institutions that are producing the patents and ideas that are going into these and hospitals. Uh, and hospitals. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that's why those two coasts, you know, the Bay Area and Boston really have a high density of them. Um, I think it's well established for people um, you know, around the country that those are great spots to go to and interview. We certainly get a number of candidates from all over the country and all over the world um, interviewing for positions in the lab, other other labs at Dana-Farber, Harvard Medical School, and Foghorn and other biotech companies. They, I think that's seen quite a lot. And I've also liked, I really enjoyed watching the reactions of people. We have a, a, a friend that moved from Ohio, for example, did training at Case Western and, you know, had obviously fantastic training, cool. went to Ohio yeah. State, yeah. all great places, um, did fantastic research, you know, was, was picked for residency to come to um, the Boston area, you know, and he, just in hearing his um, perspectives about his new environment, you know, just sort of blown away yeah. by, by Boston and, um, you know, really uh, taken by the number of possibilities. Because there's, there's just so many components, right? You can't just have the insights and the uh, academic excellence and yeah. the the intelligence. It really, that's not everything. You need a unique creative uh, ideas, set of ideas. And sometimes, like you mentioned at the beginning, that can come from totally, total naivete. Yeah. From somebody who was not exposed to science at all, maybe. You know, and they were like uh, in a totally di- business, you know, in a totally different field. And they grew up in the middle of the country. Yeah. And they just happened to have a question that, you know, if done creatively and done well, could spearhead a whole new way of thinking about a problem, be it in biotech or in, you know, in tech or anything else. Yeah. One final thing. So I think, you know, often um, when people are young, they think, well, we're going to cure cancer one day. I think probably my father thought that. Sure. Um, Given what happened with your up hair when you're growing up, like, did this actually feel like it's a possibility now? And I don't, and as we talked about, not in this, like, we cured yeah. Cancer, this general thing, but where yeah. you have cancer, some says no. We we have a way to treat that and eradicate it. I think this is definitely there for that. I think we're already seeing examples of biologics that are really as you know, in an unprecedented way for where we are right now, on target. Yeah, you know, on target medicines that are affecting a genetic vulnerability um, or a vulnerability that's defined by a constellation of mutations or a single mutation. Uh, a pathway that is uniquely activated or um, or altered in some way in that disease setting. It's the first time we're really seeing that, and we're seeing clinical trials. And I think, you know, I think sequencing really also starts to explain um, parts of the sort of, if you will, fail not failure, but um, 
maybe lackluster output of the array era of 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 my, you know of um, just array for looking at gene expression. Yeah, yeah. RNA array, you know, just gene expression arrays. We thought that that would be the holy grail. Yeah. That provided some new insights. It told you where things are overexpressed and where you might have an opportunity. But, you know, what we now know, and I think especially speaking from the chromatin biology field, because the mutations are often in these large master regulatory complexes that are controlling a number of different pathways. For example, even in a take synovial sarcoma or take a few of these, you know, rare but well-defined cancers that have one problem in just this one protein complex, a number of pathways downstream are affected. So in the previous era, you might have seen, okay, kinase pathway A is very massively upregulated. This should be cured, if you will, by, by a therapy against that kinase. Yep. You know, now we understand why that failed. I think for a good amount of the clinical trials that were run in the late 1990s and early 2000s defined on the gene expression, you know, array era, or, you know, spearheaded and motivated by that. Yeah. I think um, while there were some successes, a lot of the failures can now go back and be explained by genetics, because we now know that either it was a master regulator that was perturbed, in which case, yeah, you targeted one pathway, but there were actually 25 others that were activated. So, of course, the cancer finds ways around that one therapy it either didn't work or they quickly developed resistance to it. That's not to say for any even targeted biologic there won't be resistance. There sure. will be. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for for on-target cell molecules, you would anticipate on-target resistance mechanisms. Um, but, you know, I think this is just defining a new It's really just like the, the depth of knowledge is greater. But it's important not to forget um, oftentimes the power of, you know, in, in our particular field, particularly, um, you know, biochemistry yeah. and structural biology and making sure that we never lose sight of the fundamental governance of proteins, because that's what you're really drugging in the end. And so I think um, where our unique approach comes in is always trying to merge those two. Um, and, and that's been a really exciting way to, to think about science and to try to understand and maximally uh, inform the new era of, yeah. uh, of targeted therapeutics. Thank you. <laughs> We're done. It's really good. Awesome. All right. I hope uh, that's it. I hope you're still listening, that you made it through the whole thing. I don't know how you couldn't, as interesting as it was. Um, by the time you hear this, Sigal will be married. So congratulations to her on her, on her new life. Thank you for coming into the studio. Thank you to Kristen Applegate for doing the heavy lifting of getting our schedules aligned. That was very much appreciated. You know, we, we finished the recording and she said, wow, that was, that was fun. You know, I, I get asked all the time about, um, you know, what it was like to set up a lab at her age. How did she found a company at her age because she's so young? And, and she said, I'm glad you didn't ask me those kinds of questions. And I thought, no, I wasn't going to ask him anything like that. Come on, that's for, that's for rookies. I wouldn't ask that. Um, so anything else? Uh, if you have questions about this podcast or uh, our journal or anything else that we do, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. You can reach us there. Um, should say that our archives are completely free. All of these podcasts that we do are free. We've got, who's in there? David Baltimore is in there. Um, one of my favorites still is Kari Stephenson. Uh, I recorded that uh, with him in Iceland. That was a great one for me. And plenty more. It's all free. You can find that off the homepage of Nature Biotechnology. Anything else to tell you? No. No, definitely not. So thank you and goodbye.
Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.